Hey, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. This is the podcast that translates President Trump as if he needed translation. We take an honest look at the current administration. We talk about the existential threats to America. And I think there is one, but it may not be the COVID-19. It may be the reaction to COVID-19. We'll talk about that. Joining me today is Seth Liebson, former producer of, uh, what was the name of that show, Claude? Uh, I think the show was uh, Bill Bennett's Morning in America. Bill Bennett's Morning in America. It was a you nice know, little radio show that used to come on Monday through Friday. It was not, not little. <laughs> I remember Seth said once, we have hundreds of listeners. I said, hundreds? Hundreds? Yeah, oh, like two, two and a half million or yeah, something. Yeah, a right? lot. Anyway, he's host of the Seth Liebson Show, heard daily on KKNT 960 AM in Phoenix. Uh, let me discuss a few things first before we get to our guests. So, Claude, I a couple things. John Ratcliffe is up for uh, Director of National Intelligence. I hope he gets it. He was up the first time and then withdrew. They put him up again. I think he's an excellent man. You know, I just watched him all during the collusion and impeachment stuff. And I think he's an excellent man. Very smart. He's what you want in the district attorney, prosecuting attorney role that he had before. And I think he's got the kind of sharp scalpel intelligence that will be very good in cutting through the wheat and the chaff of uh, intelligence uh, information. So we'll watch that with uh, with interest. The second thing I'd mention, and Claude, I'd love your reaction to this. What is it that tells me somehow Biden is not going to make it? Huh. Interesting. I, 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 I don't mean that he'll lose to Trump. He may. Okay. But something tells me he's not going to be the final horse there. Huh. I don't know. I don't know why. I just. I mean, he's unsteady. I don't agree with all the people who say, "Well, this has been terrible for him to be in his basement." I think it's kind of been good for him in some mm-hmm. ways because he's not out there flubbing and ma- making you know stupid non-ending sentences or nonsensical sentences and what i hear is that tara reed the, the accuser is talking to F- uh, ronan farrow mia farrow's son did you know that mm-hmm. um at the new yorker uh and he's the guy who kind of broke open the Weinstein stuff and other stuff. Anyway, um, so there could be more there. She's got a certainly much stronger case than the accusers of, uh, of Kavanaugh who had nothing. So we'll see. And, and apparently, you know, a lot of the real strong feminists, and I think the feminists, the f- strong feminists may be the strongest part of the Democratic Party. I, you know, I used to think it was the teachers unions. They're still very, very powerful. But I think big mama feminism is maybe the biggest. And then um, the immigration you know, the pro-immigration lobby. And then, of course, the uh, the global global warming people. There's a lot of them over, a lot of factions over there. But there a lot of irritation with uh, with Biden on this from a lot of the, you know, more more radical feminists in the Democrat Party. And, you know, they're, 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 some of them are saying the accusation's enough. Now, I've never believed that. I've never believed that for anyone. I'm not going to believe it for Joe Biden. She can make her stand in her accusation. She can have her... You know, day in the sun, let's hear what she has to say. But then, you know, a guy's got a right to defend himself, just like these boys on campus have a right to defend themselves. Um, but, but, but it's, again, it's another thing that weakens him. So it's kind of weak because, you know, people weren't worried about his ability to express himself and to, you know, hold, hold himself up straight for holding himself up straight isn't his problem. Speaking straight, speaking directly, clearly, you know, for, uh, you know, what, three 90 minute debates. That's that's going to be a challenge. But also, the you know, the flip-flops, which have not yet been highlighted, but this guy was a pretty moderate Democrat senator and very strong on law enforcement and policing. The audience has heard me talk about that. He was my chairman. I was confirmed to be the nation's first drug czar, and he was always pushing me for more lock him up. 
And that doesn't make people comfortable. So then he's already committed to a woman as his running mate. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter. You know, people say the vice president pick doesn't matter. Often it doesn't. It didn't matter with Trump. I, mean, I, I think Mike Pence is a splendid guy. I know him well. But the whole game is about Trump. You know, Trump's going to dominate. But with Biden, I think you'd agree, Claude, it's a little different ballgame. Um, because people wonder, you know, four years, will he last four years? Will, will the mind stay secure? Or even if it, even if it does, relatively, vice president's going to have to carry more water than normal because of his limitations. Say what you want about Barack Obama. He was you know, in control of his brain and his mind and his composure. His sentences parsed. And, uh, you know, who was his vice president? Oh, yeah, it was Biden. But a little different here, so it, it becomes more important. Let me just finish this thought. Then, then who are his choices? Can't do Gretchen Whitmer. She's really making herself unpopular in Michigan. And I, I saw a poll that had him up in Michigan. But if she's the running mate, he drops two or three points, even though she's the governor of Michigan. Um, I think Stacey Abrams is out. She's campaigning too hard. She's never been elected to anything. That's the woman from, from Atlanta. So uh, that leaves uh, three other women. Elizabeth Warren? Don't know. He's already shifted a lot to the left. Very strong personality. She'll have shift him even further to the left. Does that make sense? Massachusetts uh, general election? I don't. I don't think so. Okay, uh, Amy Klobuchar, not to the left or not as far left, but she's pretty left. There y'all are. But moderate Midwest. What does that get him? I. I don't know. There's no bite. There's no. You know, kind of. Well, that's interesting. I mean, Sarah Palin, whatever you thought of her, that was an interesting choice. Not interesting to have Klobuchar. I don't know what she gets. So who's that leave? You know who that leaves? Kamala Harris. Right. And, you know, that's bite. You know, she's interesting. And, uh, of course, cut him up in the debates. Yeah, but again, left, left, left. So I I think he's in a bit of a bit of a bind there. I don't know. Maybe he goes and says, uh, all right, I'll have uh, that uh, senator from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um Baldwin, or I, 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 I don't know, um, you know, some some Republican woman senator or congressman who's, you know, no one really knows well, but, you know, has the right leftist credentials. I, I don't know. But everybody's got to look at that woman as, is she ready for the presidency? Which is an odd thing to say, because you know, the question is, compared to who? Compared to Joe? Maybe most are. But um, debates, debates will be interesting. Uh, the other thing I'd like to talk about before we get to, into COVID-19 in a deep way here is, are you kind of amazed? I'm kind of amazed. The uh, I wrote a note to Steve Moore and some other people this morning saying, boy, you know, the American people are just busted out all over. You know, that song from Carousel, June is busting out all over. Mm-hmm. They, they want to get back. You notice this? I mean, do you see the energy in these, these demonstrations and, and elsewhere? I mean... Even, even a lot, number of Democrat governors are saying, Leon, you know, let's open it up. Let's open it up. See, Polis in uh, Colorado and then um, other other Democrat, even, even Cuomo's, you know, saying, well, we'll start to open up some stuff on Friday. And, uh, you know, they're opening up some stuff in the state of Washington, another you know Democrat governor. I am just I'm just taken with the degree of uh, interest and energy and frustration, I guess. People want to go back to work. They want things to be if not normal, you know, more like normal. Mm-hmm. And um, they're chomping at the bit. I, you know, maybe, you know, we're a free people and maybe people don't really miss it until they don't have it. And they haven't had it. They've been told to stay in their houses. 
They don't like that. They just don't like that. So, you know, Dennis Prager, who has the Dennis Prager show, says, you know, we're living in a police state. Now, it's a benign police state in some ways and maybe a necessary police state early on. Maybe it could be, no, two million, three million people die. But there is this element of coercion. People are, people are, are, are rebelling against it. They want to come back. One of the things I, I don't know, maybe we should have an economist on, is if, if, if you're in a state that's red, that's coming back, and everybody's going back to work, and you're next to a state that is you know, blue or purple, does that blue or purple state feel the pressure? You know, if, if you're in Illinois, which is a, you know, a mess fiscally anyway, uh, and there's Indiana you know, coming back and doing things, They've lost a lot of citizens from Illinois to Indiana. Anyway, do you, do you feel more pressure once they gear up? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the Fox has been featuring um, these uh, the, this Bristol, Tennessee. Have you seen any of that? I have not. It's a I've driven through it several times, but it, it's it's a you, Bristol's on one side of the you know fence and and with uh, the, the gate the open gate with the you know the sign over at Bristol, Tennessee, Bristol, Virginia. Right, uh-huh. and. Um, you know, Bristol, Tennessee is opening up Bristol, Virginia, much, much more slowly. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have the situation with, uh, you know, you're going to see things bustling in Bristol, Tennessee, and maybe not so much in Bristol, Virginia. So people in Bristol, Virginia may, you know, st- start shopping. So what does the governor of Virginia do? Close down the border with Tennessee? I don't think so. Apparently a lot of people leaving New York City now, too. You know, on a much smaller scale, I mean, I don't yeah, want to bring everything back to golf. But, <laughs> I mean, there are courses in Virginia that are open. They're doing proper social distancing things, but they are allowing golfers to play. But in Maryland, uh, all courses are shut down. I know a ton of Maryland golfers that are going to Virginia to play. And uh, I received maybe five or six emails from Maryland golf courses, because I'm in uh, courses, I'm on their newsletter, where they are asking golfers to petition the governor to allow golf courses to open because all of the Maryland golfers are going to Virginia, they're going elsewhere to play, when it's perfectly fine to open the golf courses. And so, like you said, these see things bustling now, yeah. and they're making no, this money, I, uh, and these courses are suffering, and they want the business back. Well, that's it. No, that's a perfectly good example. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't care if you got a one-track mind. <laughs> Especially since you've been cooped up and you're dreaming about the greens. Uh, No, but I mean, I think you hit all the points. Is that that we're losing people, we're losing revenue. Uh, There's got to be some appeal to state pride. You're losing all your golfers in Maryland to Virginia, Mm -hmm. but restaurants aren't open because we're using Virginia here both ways. Mm -hmm. You know, compared to Tennessee, it's not. Compared to Maryland, it is. So, you know, there's a revenue issue, but then this is there kind of state pride issue. Hey, come on, governor, you know, Maryland citizens should golf in Maryland. You know, I, you know, I, I just think this energy, this push will continue. And I'm just kind of uh, impressed by the eagerness of Americans to get back to work. They don't like being cooped up. They don't like they don't like this. And I think that becomes after a while an irresistible force. And then so so you see, and then you have the medical people saying, Yeah, but that, this increased risks. And once you realize, you know, that you can do this a different way, you can focus on the people who are most vulnerable, you know, open the schools back up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I see this pressure continuing to build unless there's some enormous kickback by the by the by the virus. It hadn't happened in Georgia yet, and now it's going on, what, 10 days. 
And everybody, including the president, got on the governor of Georgia. Oh, too soon, too soon. And I talked to a very influential doctor, very close to the Trump uh, White House, who said, you know, if it's not terrible in Georgia, where they maybe opened, you know, too soon and too many things and tattoo parlors, barbershops, the damn gates will break. We'll see. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Seth Liebson, host of The Seth Liebson Show, joins me now. Seth, thank you for your time today. Former producer of... uh, Morning in America, Bill Bennett's Morning in America, which I recall you saying had hundreds of listeners. Well, I've learned it's had more than that, Bill, because, you know, to this day on my local radio show, I still get callers that say I used to listen to you in the mornings with Bill, which is just so sweet and endearing. But uh, so I think we we did a little better than hundreds. And you've now got your own show, very successful show. (laughs) And uh, we talked we talked about that. Uh, Seth, before we talk about the stuff you and I've been no secret. Lord knows we've been writing a lot of articles about covid and different pieces of it, different aspects of it. But um, before we get into that, one of the things that uh, I think both you and I believe has happened as a result of this, not attention, but obsession, almost national obsession with covid um, justified or not, and we'll get into that, is um, pushing out of some other things. You have a program that, that you established called Not My Kid. Um, and uh, yeah, by the time people are listening to this, you will have had this this event in, in Phoenix. Tell us about Not My Kid. And uh, start by saying the degree to which this has been crowded out. Concerns about the kid, Not My Kid issues have been crowded out by COVID. Sure. Well, I learned from you when you were the director of uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy that in your speeches, you would talk about when you push on one side of a balloon, you can flatten that in, but you expand and make pro- you can often create problems on the other side, right? Do I have that uh, metaphor yep. about right, Bill? That's right. That's right. That's right. And I think when we turned the schools off, when we furloughed the students, when we closed the schools... Uh, we created a huge problem that we, or a huge set of problems that we're only just beginning to scratch the surface of. So while all our attention was on um, the coronavirus, I think we neglected to think about what it would mean to completely upend and disrupt the daily lives of tens and tens and tens, almost 60 million children uh, by closing down their educational and social and athletic and interactive networks, uh, their daily educational processes and learning, their social interactions with uh, fellow students, um, a- after-school programs for millions of them. This would also include real meals, uh, perhaps sol- solid adults in their lives, uh, sending them home to certain uh, situations that uh, we would, you know, want to want to lament or or think about not being healthy. You know, a lot of homes aren't actually healthy and schools are good places for the kids during the day after school programs are. So we have boys and girls clubs, gosh knows. So what we did there is going to have tremendous, tremendous um, uh, after effects, aftershocks is going to be we are already seeing uh, with kids that are compromised by uh, mental health disabilities or psychological disabilities. We are seeing what social isolation is doing to them, having to do with issues of self-harm, um, substance abuse. 
Uh, for years and years, we have worried about what it means for kids to be spending untold hours in front of computers on computer screens. Uh, we have given them more of that and taken away their social networks at the same time, their interactive interactions with other human beings. We are about to step into a crisis we are only beginning to just understand. At the same time, we had all these problems before and hadn't solved. I just want to focus, if we can, for a minute or two on the whole drug issue, opioids mm -hmm. and so on, mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. what, what you what you're doing there to address it in in, in, sure. in Arizona. You, you guys are sure. one of the few successful states beating back legalization of marijuana, which I yeah. congratulate you. But but, but let's let's just focus on that. I, I remember reading. I guess I knew this before, but one of the worst things you can do for someone with a serious uh, drug problem is to isolate them. Right. If AA and NA meetings are good. No meetings and no contact with other people, especially people who share your problems and concerns and are empathetic, uh, has to be bad. Absolutely. Uh, good point. I learned, again, a lot of this uh, from your work. But yes, absolutely. If you think about triggers for substance abuse, you would think about loneliness. You would think about isolation. You would think about unemployment. My gosh, the whole J.D. Vance uh, uh, set of theses uh, and work on what uh, unemployment does for substance abuse, uh, drug use. So you have all those drivers exacerbated, exacerbated at the same time, as you just said, you close down self-help meetings. The perfect storm analogy probably is far below a better phrase we're going to need for this. You're driving substance abuse and you are creating all the triggers for relapse of those in recovery. That's, I think, what I mean when I say the perfect storm. And it's not as if, as I said before, we had a handle on these things by March 1. You know, think of it this way. Um, we are uh, at uh, something like 65,000-plus deaths due to COVID-19, maybe a little higher, maybe 67,000. Uh, that's what we lost last year to substance abuse, to drug abuse, to drug overdose. And that doesn't have to do with accidents. That doesn't have to do with violence. That's just the overdose number, 67,000. Those of us in prevention and recovery um, uh, nonprofits and with a focus on those issues, we celebrated that number because the year before it was 70,000. Let's yeah. let's get ready to see all those numbers go way back up. Yeah, I fear they will, won't they? When we record this year, those numbers will go back up. And this is only counting those numbers. Um, Think of the effects right. of the isolation on other things like suicide and alcohol abuse and child suicide, abuse. Suicide, ideation, uh, yeah, alcohol right, abuse, right, domestic right. violence. So I what? think we've created a much worse problem than the coronavirus in trying to solve the problem of the coronavirus. By the way, something you've been very good at pointing out, this is um, a set of policies we've enacted to protect a population that isn't affected by the coronavirus. That's the dramatic irony here. Children are fairly immune to the coronavirus, and they are the ones who got the worst effects by having the schools and after-school programs shut down. Tell us just a little bit about uh, Not My Kid, in case people want to find out more. Thanks, and thanks for your help with it. Not My Kid was founded. We're celebrating our 20-year anniversary this year, or we were going to, uh, before uh, the coronavirus uh, uh, problem canceled our, our, our annual event. It was founded by uh, Debbie and Steve Moak, a great couple here in Arizona, who 
um, had a problem with their child, with their son, and they gave it the name Not My Kid because they were a typical uh, all-American family, if you will, that would have never thought substance abuse would be a problem in their house, and it was. And we are now, after 20 years, probably the state's most well-recognized substance abuse prevention organization, Uh, very much a lot like what your wife, Elaine, has done with her Best Friends Foundation. We operate in the schools, we operate after school, and we have now expanded our services. We have something called, uh, so we don't just do prevention, we now uh, have something called Project Rewind, which has become our most popular program for students that um, fall in the cracks, that do get into trouble at school. We work with the schools and their parents. If they go through our program, they don't get a suspension. They don't get expelled. They don't have it on their record once they go through our once they go through our program together. And now we're expanding yet again to con- to through the continuum of service to do outpatient uh, uh, outpatient treatments. So we've been expanding for the last twenty years. I'm delighted to chair the organization based on my work with you. They asked me to do that, and we want to thank you for your help with it. We're happy to. Great. Yeah. Um, you know, again, you've heard me say the line from Death of a Salesman that uh, Linda Lohman says to her sons about their father, you got, you got to pay attention. Attention must be paid. And and one of the things COVID-19 is it has taken all our attention. It seems. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I just noticed just a, a, a you know, just, just an example of it. Um, they're talking about, you know, the Senate is, is back and the House may come back and they're debating things. And, you know, Mitch McConnell, so we got to get some insurance, you know, protection for, you know, employers and so on. And then I, I saw Chuck Schumer's response. He said, but we're back and we're only going to do one thing. There's only one thing to do. Uh, yeah. And that's uh, that's COVID-19. Now, this COVID-19 thing is serious. We obviously all know that, yeah. but we can do more than one thing at a time. And we have to. But this is where I want to take you now from the particular of the of the not my kid program and that to the larger what's going on in the larger cultural sense here um just just by way of example we we have you and i will get to this a little bit later too have some pretty good sources for information about what's going on in the states and it really looks as if this uh this covid 19 thing 19 thing has peaked and then all of a sudden yesterday we hear whoops the estimates of 65 or 70,000 deaths are way low the IHME out of the University of Washington now says maybe 135,000 and then there's something circulating about uh, a report to the White House that we're going to lose 3,000 people a day every day in June uh-huh. and uh-huh. that things will be I, I, I don't want to deal with those numbers right now whether they're accurate or not but it does seem to me that every time there's some good news uh, or, you know, it looks like the thing is crested and, and, and you know, and, and then it's starting to come down. It's not just that we hear other things. There seems to be a kind of sense of urgency that we hear it. Oh, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Things are not getting better. Absolutely not right. getting better. Right. They're getting worse. Right. What is that all about? I have kind of come up with a phrase, whether it's unique, I don't know, or new, I don't know. But I think there's a crisis industrial complex in this country. And I think it's been driven by social media, Facebook, certainly Twitter, those kinds of avenues. I think cable news is disastrous on this and is probably the worst um, the worst uh, fuel on that fire. And it has taken what we have seen, Bill, in politics and the sociology of politics since about the 1960s into hyperspeed. You and I were writing about, you know, you look at the uh, start in politics, uh, maybe 
people can remember the Goldwater campaign of 1964. Goldwater himself wasn't just wrong or conservative. They had to have a magazine of over a thousand psychiatrists saying he was mentally deranged. Um, in the 1970s, we had predictions out of Stanford University that hundreds of millions of people were going to die due, a, due to a population explosion that never happened. In the 1980s, we didn't just have an arms race with the Soviet Union. Uh, we were going to have a nuclear winter that would kill hundreds of millions more. Of course, it didn't happen. And that moved into a global warming pandemic that has us watching the disappearance of ecosystems before our very eyes, if you listen to 16-year-old girls that the United Nations and Time magazine likes to promote. And so, so there's always, it seems to me, been this investment in uh, in, in the notion that we are all on the eve of destruction, you know, that old Mary Maguire song. We're always on the eve of destruction, and people are invested in that, some financially, but I think more emotionally and more politically. And I think that this virus has helped create the new chapter, uh, or perhaps uh, the, new, the, new, um, uh, the, the new iteration of that notion. Because you're right though, you do kind of have to look at these numbers and have some perspective. We lose far more in America to so many other things that never got this kind of attention. Never. For example, we were talking about those substance abuse numbers. Well, we lost 70,000 Americans to simply overdose. Again, not the accidents, not the violence, just overdose. We've never done anything like this. Take, you know, the thing that we're not supposed to talk about. I have no idea why not, but the flu of 2017 uh, or the flu any given year, we used 800,000 hospital beds for the flu in America in 2017. We used a little over 100,000 for COVID, but hospital beds were the big issue for COVID and coronavirus. The perspective has been lost, Bill. And yeah, in ignoring those other things, we're going to exacerbate them. Heart conditions. You know what unemployment does to cardiac arrest? Again, fuel on the fire. We are, and, and we have put off to address coronavirus and COVID, we've put off angiograms, angioplasties, cancer screenings. You're going to tell me stress doesn't cause cancer? Of course it does. We have real problems that we have just made a lot worse by giving this disease a privileged or advantaged status beyond any form of comparison or calm or reason. I just want to note a, a, a subtlety or a, a nuance in what you just said about, uh, you know, people not getting their, their hearts checked when they're in bed, uh -huh. heart pain, chest pain, uh, getting their stents, uh, people with uh, chemotherapy, uh, you know, elective, elective surgery doesn't necessarily mean, you know, not serious surgery. But I noticed a number of the governors have said, well, okay, we're opening it back up again for you know, elective surgeries and visits, but that's only a piece of it. The, the, the second piece is, will anybody come? And, and we've so terrified the people yeah. that a lot of people aren't going to, going to come. I, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I have, I have three or four different doctors. Nothing, no, there's nothing serious. I have some underlying conditions, but you know, I see them regularly, not a problem, you know, getting an appointment, not a problem. Because uh, people, you know, be, be, people are doing virtual appointments, but afraid to, afraid to go in because we are scared. The, the, yeah, we've scared the hell out of people. We have scared the hell out of people. We have also furloughed and laid off a lot of healthcare workers. Hospitals going bankrupt, by the way. I think that's going to have a real problem. But yeah, the elective surgery thing. 
What are we talking about with elective surgeries? We're talking about uh, hip and joint replacements, knee replacements, of course, due to deterioration and chronic pain. What do people do with chronic pain? Often they will use uh, opioid medicines or opioids illegally. Uh, so we've, again, got that problem brewing again. But yeah, early cancer screenings, 1.8 million early cancer screenings put off. The rule in medicine, of course, with cancer, as with cardiac, is the sooner the better. Speed matters. Early matters. All of that has been delayed, not by one month, not by two months, but by at least you know a third of a year. This is, this is a healthcare crisis. We talked about the mental aspect. There's a physical aspect, too. A freedom-loving people is getting frustrated. I, you know, I can see this. Um, you know, American people love freedom. They just don't appreciate it till they're told they don't have it anymore. You know, now they're starting to come out, and you know, we see these protests. And I think that's the tip of the iceberg. A lot of people would never protest, but want to want to get back to things. But as soon as they are ready to come back, there's this there's this push back. Don't you dare! Things are going to be worse in June, July, and August. Um, there is some politics in this, right? I mean, some people are hoping that uh, you know the situation is so dire that Donald Trump is thrown out of office. Um, one hates to say that, but but that that's true. But but I think the political thing is actually, although there, not as not as significant as the cultural thing you're talking about. And I was just writing now; it's just fiddling with words with you, as you were talking. The all-consuming crisis mentality. You know, and, and it consumes everything in its way. Everything else gets thrown by the board. School, opioid problems, work, uh, the gross national product. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought it up, the music. One of the lines, if I remember correctly, is think of all the hate there is in red China. We used to say red China. Yeah. We should say it yeah. again. Think of all the hate there is in red China and take a look around the Selma, Alabama. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, not, yeah. not equivalent. Not equivalent. Not certainly not anymore. Go ahead. No, I remember Barack Obama when he was president addressing the UN and criticizing radical Islam and terrorism abroad and said, of course, we have our problems in Ferguson, Missouri, too. Right. That's a version of that. It's perhaps too trite, maybe you're too overworn to quote Rahm Emanuel about a crisis going to waste now. But James Clyburn a month ago Number three in the House of Representatives said this is an opportunity for us to get our agenda through. And there is some of that going on, a lot of that perhaps. But I want to go back to something. I don't know if I'm challenging your thesis or just want to discuss it with you if we have time, of about freedom-loving Americans. You know, there is another part of this that I'm noticing uh, here in Phoenix. I'm reading a lot about it in New York. Heather McDonald's been writing about it. You know, the pitting of Americans against each other and the social shame um, that is going on, I think, yes, there's a lot of frustration, people wanting to go back to work, wanting to use the various uh, services from healthcare to retail. But there's a big, larger group of, of people that I didn't see coming who shame you if you don't wear a mask, um, I think, who um, shame you if you think it's okay to go back to work. You know, work is one of the virtues in your book and in, I think, human history's book. Um, and I think we've, 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 we've challenged um, Americans and perhaps people across the world to an unnatural condition here, all while pitting them against each other. I think we've pit them against each other in the notion that some jobs are essential, some are not. If you don't wear a mask, you're putting other people at risk. The governor of New York said that earlier this week. Um, I, I, I think we have really, in a divided country, divided Americans more. 
Yeah. Well, how about the uh, distinction between essential and non-essential workers, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got a job and you're supporting your family with your job. It's essential, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, that Turns hats off. To, costs money, right? Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Hats off to all the people who are, you know, on the front lines of this course. But the front lines go beyond the front lines, you know? They go to the supply chain and the people who are working and so on and so yeah. on. But there, yeah, yeah, there is there is something very odd and self defeating about this. Yeah. Um, uh, this is. Uh, this is not a way a, a free and proud people behave, but you know, like uh, maybe, maybe you know, a few years ago, maybe still around, you know, if you even mentioned that you were maybe opposed to hiring by race or you know certain uh-huh. kinds of affirmative action programs versus discriminate, you would be called a racist. Um, now, you know, the kind of shaming, so people would keep their mouth shut. Now, if you don't wear a mask, you know. Um, Dr. Vizier, who we're about to talk to, says, you know, the, the virtue signaling, see, put on your effing mask, you know, put on your blankety blank mask. So, the, 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 you know, that's 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 heightened the opposition. Plus, we know about the blue state, red state thing. Um, yep. We know about I was the, in a, Trump, I was the in a derangement syndrome. The other day. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I was in a grocery store the other day. Um, and I don't wear a mask. I refuse to. I hope it's okay to say that. That's my own, and we don't mandate it here, but uh, boy, I, I think I'm in the minority, or at least not clear majority. And I was in the grocery store the other day, and I'm standing in line to check out. An older woman, I don't know, maybe in her 70s, with a mask, says something to me. I can't read her facial expression. No one can when you have a mask. Think about that. I mean, a year ago, we were actually debating anti-masking legislation in public. That's how fast we've changed. She said something to me. I'm, I kind of am guessing she wants to tell me that I'm endangering her. I can't hear her. So I move a little closer and move a little closer and a little closer so I can hear her. She's merely asking me if I can help reach something on a shelf behind me for her. Perfectly pleasant. We're getting looks from the rest of the people. I mean, you know, this, 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 this is a community. This is a civilization now. We can't understand each other. We are engaged to distrust one another. All she wanted was a little help. And um, this, this is what we've done here. It's maybe a small story, but I think it says a big thing. It's, it's interesting, too. It's an honest story because it talks about how you've been affected. You were pretty sure she was mumbling something at you, right? I, I had no idea. Right. And, no and, idea. and, and the map no defeated the whole you, purpose you, of the communication. You had to get closer. You had to destroy. <laughs> you had to ruin social distancing so you could hear what the heck she was trying to ask me, you know, and she was a perfectly lovely person. But, yeah, first I thought she was going to criticize me. It didn't matter. Others were criticizing both of us. So we all have quick, quicker triggers. I mean, that's that's yeah. that. Yeah. We all have quicker, yeah. quicker triggers. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, you know what I think? Tell me, tell tell me, tell me what's wrong with this. I think because there's all this talk about a year, six months, nine months. I think I think we're going to come up with a vaccine. I think we're going to come up with it fast, uh, or if not a vaccine, some treatments. You know that are going to, you know, put this put this thing out of business. I think we're going to do it within months, and then it will be over. Question mark. Let's just just enter. You know, I was watching a special. I was watching a special on uh, Sunday about the um, salt vaccine for polio. I don't know. Are you are you old enough to remember some of that, Bill? Oh sure. Um, I, I had them. Okay. Yeah, I was. I got the pinch. Okay. Yeah. 
And the country went crazy happy, right? It should have. That was the right response. I mean, it was a miracle, and they went crazy happy. And you don't really hear about it anymore. But um, I, I worry a little bit about I worry a little bit about that, honestly. I, I, I think, again, there is an investment in failure and crisis. I wonder if we're going to have that kind of universal uh, elation once we do get that vaccine. Uh, I hope I hope we do. I hope that there's a universal elation over it. And if we do move on to some semblance of normalcy, what's that going to be like, to your question more directly? Because I think that there is some accounting that needs to be um, taken care of here. I really do. I really think there's some accounting and uh, some cause and effect that uh, needs to be addressed. Excellent. Excellent. Um... I've asked uh, the audience to tell me, you know, something good that's come out of this. The only thing I can think of is that, um, as I announced to my wife, a department store chain, upper, upper, what do you call it? Higher end, slightly higher end. Higher end is going bankrupt and she does some business there. I said, well, this is good news. Uh, (laughs) No more shopping there. Uh, Anyway. well, there's that, and I understand that. I do. I, I walk Dagny in uh, the Biltmore, which is one of those areas. But you know who we think of? I know. Your wife does. She's one of the most charitable people I know. You are, too. We think of the people who work in those stores, maybe not the people who shop there so much as the people who work there making 10 and 12 bucks an hour. I don't know where they're going. I have no idea where they're going or what their families but, are doing. Uh, but things happen. I just want to close here by saying I made an introduction for you. Um, yeah. which has turned out to be productive in a way I would not have anticipated. Um, I was telling you about this great statistician. I don't know if we should say his name. I don't think he wants to be flooded with mail, but this great mathematician, okay. statistician, uh, yeah. uh, actuary, who's tracking the thing and coming up with these very good um, numbers daily. And yeah. um, maybe next time you can ask if uh, we could use his name. Does he want more business or less? I don't know. He's yeah. a pretty busy yeah. guy. But then it turns out that you and he share an interest, which I regard <laughs> as Perfectly sensible and normal, but got arcane within about three emails. <laughs> Turns out he's quite a good trumpet player, and um, he has a lot of gigs. A lot of he does a lot of shows, and uh, that's what fascinated me. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a trumpet nerd or a trumpet geek myself, and yeah, sure, all those graphs are great, all those numbers are fabulous. But we got off into what uh, sometimes trumpeters do. They get into abstruse discussions of equipment, what kind of mouthpiece, what kind of horn, when do you switch this for that? Do you prefer Maynard Ferguson to Bud Brisbaugh? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> so we've taken on a whole new, we've probably bored you to tears. But to me, that's so far I, more interesting I, I, than I, I, these crafts I, I have to ask if I, I'm holding up right side up or right side down. <laughs> Yeah, I exited the discussion after after a while, yeah. but uh, 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 so many levels to this. Now, you say, you know, you have fascination with you You actually play the trumpet, right? You know, it's a funny thing. When I was in high school, I was either going to go into political science or become a professional musician. I, I had two roads. And my dad, whom you uh, got to know a little bit before he passed, he was a physician. He was actually pushing me in the music direction. And so it's, you know, it's just been a hobby and, and, and something that's occupied my, my interests for years, you know, but I never did it. I never became professional like this guy. No, this guy's very good. And how long have we been friends? I was thinking about that. A couple decades anyway, yeah. And I've never heard you play the trumpet. Well, I've never heard you play the guitar, and I understand you had a band in college. Lousy, lousy, lousy. <laughs> 
we'll, we'll leave it at that. But I know you're, I know you're good. good. Retributions are coming already. Okay. There was some discussion of having you play at some event. I think it was the roast of my brother and me. You were going to play at that thing. And I, I was going to do that, or maybe at a best friends. Let's put in a, a word for them. That your wife's yeah, great organization too. Maybe it was a best friends yeah. event. I'm yeah, still, yeah. I'm still available. I'm, I'm less excited. I, you know, I'll work for less than scale. Yeah. <laughs> well, being that I'm in my 70s with underlying conditions that you promised to play, you know, at the the end of the road for your good friend. <laughs> I, uh, I, can, I can do taps, but or it won't be for many, 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 many years. Eve of Destruction or, you know, yeah. do why diddy diddy. Okay, whatever. Seth, thank you No, that much. checkered flag is long far away. Oh, when you stop, when you stop, when you stop that. <laughs> Should I tell the audience yeah. that? I think, why not? Yeah, sure, why not? So we have a priest, a wonderful priest who looks after our family. And he truly is. He's a Francis Thompson poem, The Hound of Heaven. He's our hound of heaven. He comes and visits us yeah. and says, I'd like to come to dinner and check on your spiritual well-being. Father Michael, and he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. And the la- one of the last times he came, he said, well, you know, you've really had a great impact on this country. And children, education, other things, he said. And, um, you know, you should be congratulated. He said, now, you know, you've seen the checkered flag. And I said, what, 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 what? You got news? <laughs> yeah, he, he needs to go to a few more NASCAR races, perhaps, to understand that you have not. <laughs> Every time I see him, I say, here I am, still breathing, still working, still holding down four jobs, no checkered flag. So I'm sorry, it's just, you know. Like, What's the Shakespeare line? It's not the worst if you can say this is the worst. You're still there. You're still there. It's not the worst as long as you can say this is the worst, yeah. 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 All right. Well, this wasn't the worst. This was good. Thank you, Seth. God bless you you and Claude and good luck and stay strong and well. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. And you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 